Greetings, everyone, and welcome to the fourth installment of our study through the book of Philippians. I hope and pray that, that all of you have managed to stay safe, healthy, and joyful over this last week. Pretty weird week, right? The, the sky and, and that, that haze, boy, it's so eerie. But we're, we're making it through, and, and I'm, I'm glad to be here recording this for y'all. So as you know, uh, or at least you should know by now, if you've been following me in this series, uh, the Philippians, the book of Philippians is a letter. It's a letter, or as scholars would call it, uh, an epistle written by the Apostle Paul to the believers in the church at Philippi. When he wrote the letter, Paul was about 5,000 miles away in Rome under house arrest. Paul was under house arrest waiting to have an audience with the emperor, who was Caesar Nero. I mention this not only to provide a little background information, but also to help us understand and appreciate the tone of Paul's message in this letter, the, the tone that he uses with his friends. You see, even though he was imprisoned, uh, the joy and the love that, that Paul felt for his friends in Philippi, it, it just oozes out of this letter. It, it just permeates every word. And, and so much so that, that the book of Philippians is often referred to as the epistle of joy. And speaking of joy, it would bring me joy to pray for us before we go on. So let's pray. Good and gracious God, Heavenly Father, we thank you for your great mercy and faithfulness. We pray for your Holy Spirit to fill our hearts and to strengthen us in our weakness. Give us ears to hear, Lord, and, and let the truth of your word draw us closer to you. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Well, this morning, uh, we are going to be studying the final section of, of chapter 1. And I've got to let you know, this is now officially the longest series that I have ever preached. My previous record was three, <laughs> and I did that a couple of months ago with my World, Flesh, and the Devil series. So this is officially my, my longest series, and I can't tell you how much I appreciate you sticking with me. So anyway, this morning, part four is chapter one, verses 27 to 30. So if you have your Bibles with you, please turn to Philippians chapter one, and we shall begin reading at verse 27. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come to see you or am absent, I may hear that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had, and now hear that I still have. So let's start at the beginning, which I have been told is a very good place to start. In verse 27, Paul instructs his people to let their manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. And that is good, solid advice, and 
But there is a little bit more here than, than meets the eye. The word that is translated as conduct yourselves is actually the same word uh, from which we get the English words for politics and politician. It literally means to conduct yourself as citizens. Now, now this would have been especially significant to the believers in Philippi, uh, which was a Roman colony. You see, a, a citizen of, of a Roman colony was expected to believe as if they were in Rome. For them, the, the customs and, and the laws of Rome provided the framework for their public behavior. Now we know, and we can be really sure, that Paul would not have spent a single minute of this letter instructing his friends to behave like Roman citizens. Behaving like a Roman citizen would have been entirely incompatible with the gospel. Uh, for one thing, the Romans did not believe in the one true God. Uh, instead, they believed in a pantheon, a, a multiplicity of deities. They, they had almost 20 major gods that they worshipped. Uh, Jupiter, Mars, Saturn, Apollo. Those are just a few of the gods that were worshipped by the Romans. And the Romans also placed a premium on the ability to wage war. Uh, taking over property and enslaving the local population, that, that was just business as usual uh, for the Roman army. Women and children were regarded as mere property. And quite often, unwanted children were, were sold into slavery by their families. And, and lastly, uh, until the end of the first century, the male head of household, be it the father, grandfather, oldest son, the male head of household had the right to, to punish and even kill members of his own family. So it's pretty clear that Paul w was not telling his friends to act like Romans. What then was he actually telling them? Well, to answer that, we have to jump ahead just a little bit. We have to read what Paul writes a little later on in this letter, uh, specifically in chapter 3, verse 20, uh, which reads as follows. But our citizenship is in heaven. You get that? Our citizenship is in heaven. So what Paul is actually saying is this. Because of your heavenly citizenship, live a life that is worthy of the gospel. And although it was true that, that the believers in, in Philippi were Roman citizens, they had a dual citizenship. And, and Paul is making an appeal to that reality. Uh, they, they were members of a heavenly government, and therefore they, they shouldn't be acting like everybody else. Uh, remember the, the Christian store that called themselves not of this world? That is exactly what is being implied by being a citizen of heaven. Though we may live on this earth and have to abide by the rules of the local governments, the ultimate authority over our conduct is our Heavenly Father. Behaving as citizens in a manner worthy of the gospel carries responsibilities. Now, I am sure that we have all heard the phrase, ugly American. Ugly American. As unflattering as it is, the behavior that prompted the invention of the term is just as disturbing. The ugly American, 
it refers to a stereotype of loud, arrogant, demeaning, thoughtless, ignorant, and ethnocentric behavior, mainly abroad, but also at home. Uh, the ugly American is the type of guy who, who could be standing on the Great Wall of China and complain that there isn't a Starbucks close by. Or he, he would berate the tour guide for not speaking American. You get the picture. Behaving in a manner worthy of the gospel is the exact opposite of that. Paul is exhorting his friends. He is urging them to conduct themselves as ambassadors of their heavenly government. Ambassadors of their heavenly government. The love and respect that, that they show to one another should be shown to everyone. To do anything less would bring shame upon themselves and upon the gospel. Our worthy behavior, our faith, shouldn't be environmental. Let me explain. Paul wants his friends to behave properly, whether he is with them or not. He doesn't want their good behavior to fall by the wayside just because he's not there to keep an eye on them. Environmental faith is a faith that is totally dependent upon one's surroundings. For example, a, a person might be faithful under positive influences like being around certain people or being in church or being at a Christian college, but once they're away from those influences, their faith becomes weakened, or, or in some cases, it, it, it becomes completely lost. Here's just a few examples of environmental faith. Uh, praying in public, but not in private. Reading your Bible in church, but not reading it at home. A lack of personal closeness and dependence upon God and Jesus Christ. What Paul is urging them to do in a single word is strive for integrity. In integrity has been defined as doing the right thing when no one is watching. And that definition would probably suffice uh, for anyone who didn't believe in Jesus. Integrity, though, uh, for a believer is doing the right thing because you know that there is always someone watching. There is always someone watching. Our behavior should not be dependent upon anything but the presence of Christ alone. Well, Paul then uh, continues at the end of verse 27 and the beginning of verse 28 to provide us with some specific examples of conduct worthy of the gospel. He first mentions that, that he has heard that his friends are standing firm in one spirit. And I'd like to break that down in, into two sections. Uh, standing firm is putting the truth of the gospel above the worldly temptations. Remember that unholy trinity from our, our previous series, the, the world, the flesh, and the devil? And, and you may recall that we discussed the three ism words, egoism, hedonism, materialism, and the, and the destructive effects that they have on, well, it's actually a fourth ism word, the destructive effects they have on our spiritualism. Philippi was a major city, and like any major city, it had its fair share of less than honorable distractions. And even though it was located 
over eight miles from Neapolis, which was the nearest seaport, Philippi was a trade city and, and a destination for the sailors arriving from port. Sailors who, as you can imagine, after months at sea, were eager to partake in the earthly pleasures, you know, wine, women, and song. They, they were abundantly available, and not just to the sailors. Being a trade city also meant that, that there were all manner of material goods to be bought and sold, exotic, exclusive items that were a tempting lure into the sin of materialism. The believers in Philippi would also have had to contend with other religions vying for their attention. As I mentioned earlier, the, the Romans worshipped a large number of gods. One particular area, though, that deserves a closer look is the very possible presence of what was known as the imperial cult. The imperial cult. That cult worshipped the emperor as a god and treated his every act and proclamation as a divine event. The ideology was built around Caesar Nero's claim that he was the Lord and Savior and that he would bring salvation and peace to the world. He really said that. Uh, I know it sounds crazy, but uh, as history has shown us, he's not going to be the last guy that, that's going to make such a claim. I mean, I, we probably all remember Jim Jones, right? And Paul exhorts his friends to, to fight against unbelief. The sin of unbelief can, can strike even the most mature Christians when, when they're facing a crisis of doubt. Paul was, he was well aware of the effect that his imprisonment was having and on the resolve of his friends. And, and he knew that there was that temptation, you know, that we all have, that temptation to take matters into our own hands. That's a very, very strong temptation. And, and it's impossible to, to overcome by, by one's own power. That's why Paul commands his people to stand firm in one spirit. A burden shared is a burden lightened. The strength of unity, especially unity that is built upon Jesus, that unity can prevail against even the most compelling temptations that the world can, can throw at us. Isolation from others is quite often the first step into sin. By, by neglecting a blessing of fellowship with other believers, Paul's friends would have been playing a, a very dangerous game. He urges them then to, to band together and, and to strive, as he says, side by side for the faith and the sake of the gospel. See, by doing so, they would be fulfilling his request to behave as citizens of heaven. Aggressively promoting the gospel in unity with one another is exactly what Paul meant by conduct worthy and it serves a duofold purpose one it advances the gospel more effectively and this is really nothing more than a simple numbers game the more people that you have preaching means that more people are going to hear your message it's a very simple numbers game secondly people need to pre need to be provided with an alternative to sin left to their own devices I should say, left to our own devices, people will backslide into their old, wicked ways. Well, 
Paul knows, and so should we, that you cannot simultaneously preach the gospel and engage in any sort of sinful behavior. The, the modern equivalent of this is what is known as behavior replacement therapy, or BRT. BRT emphasizes the need to replace a negative behavior with something positive. You know, as, as much as anyone might want to refrain from bad behavior, unless they're provided with something to fill that void, they will eventually return to their old habits. Remember the parable that, that Jesus told in Luke 11? In the parable, uh, Jesus compared our bodies to a house. And when we clean that house, in other words, when, when we rid ourselves of a bad habit or an unholy behavior, when we clean our house, unless we fill ourselves with the Holy Spirit, that bad habit is going to come right back. And there's a very good chance he's going to bring along a bunch of his evil buddies with him. It's human nature, absolute human nature, that a person needs to feel significant. And, and we will seek that significance wherever we can find it. Paul knew, as, as should we, that real significance and ultimate fulfillment can only be found through serving Jesus Christ. The reasoning behind Paul's very strong admonition to stand firm and stand in unity with one another was motivated by his concern over the powerful and unremitting opposition to the spread of the gospel. You see, the, the believers in Philippi were on a mission, just as we are today, to bring others into the belief and the faith that they had. However, there were forces aligned against the, their efforts that a Paul, Paul appears to be well acquainted with. Perhaps they were the very same obstacles that, that Paul himself had to contend with when he was in Philippi. Namely, opposition from their pagan neighbors and from the Roman authorities. F. F. Bruce, who is one of the leading scholars specializing on the life and the ministry of the Apostle Paul, has publicly supported this opinion. In his commentary on the book of Philippians, Professor Bruce asserts that there is no evidence to suggest that the Philippian believers were contending with opposition from within their own ranks. Rather, the enemies of the gospel were entirely external and deserving of that strenuous call to action that that Paul provides them with. In, in verse 28, uh, moving on, the apostle urges his friends to not be frightened by anything that the enemy throws at them. The word that he uses uh, for frightened is an interesting choice, and it's worth taking just a moment to look at a little closer. This particular word appears only once in the New Testament. I mean, that's reason alone to explore it. If any time a word only appears one time, it's worth a, a little closer look. Well, when we look at other documents that were written around the same time as the, the letter, we find that that particular word was used, most often used, to describe the frightened behavior of animals, uh, mainly the frightened behavior of horses. Well, the significance of that is made clear with just a 
Just a little bit of imagination. So if you would, indulge me here. Uh, see, when I was a kid, my dad would watch a lot of Westerns. And as a result, I have watched a lot of Westerns. And because of this, I, I can give you a list of cliches, or as they're known in the modern terminology, tropes. I can give you a list of tropes that, would, that you would be guaranteed to see in almost every single Western. For one, how about the barroom fight scene, right? With the stools flying and tables being cracked over people's head and the whole time the piano player's over there trying to keep the, the music going and, and ducking under bottles. Or how about the, the long shot down the street of the sheriff and he's walking down the street and the camera gets closer and then it slowly pans up and, and you see that tin star that's pinned to his vest. You've seen that one. Well, how about the scene that, that has a, a herd of horses in, in a corral? Just a, a herd of horses, just kind of chilling, and one of them gets frightened. And he doesn't get frightened by, by anything huge. He gets frightened by something small. It could be a mouse, it, it could be a cat, it could be a, a loud noise down the street. But whatever it is, that one horse kicks everything off. He, he starts being agitated and he starts bucking and, and making noise and before long that, that feeling and, and the action that, that he is doing, it spreads to the other horses. And then before you know it, they're going wild. They end up busting down the corral and running down the street. Well, okay, you're probably thinking, uh, that's a nice horse story, Jim, but, but what does that have to do with Paul's choice of words? Well, two things, I, I believe. Number one, Paul was warning them about the contagious nature of fear. Fear spreads through a population faster than a virus. Fear can lead to a disproportionate response, a disproportionate reaction from people who, who sometimes they might not even know what they're acting afraid of. Paul appeals to their sense of identity in Christ. And, and this brings me to, to the second point, which is the believers, whether they know it or not, the believers are way stronger than the opposition. The terrified reaction of a horse to a mouse, I mean, that occurs because the horse obviously has no concept of how big and how strong he is in comparison to the mouse. Paul is reminding his friends to remember who they are. To remember that the God they serve is mightier than anything that can ever be raised against them. By remaining steadfast in their faith and, and presenting a unified front, the believers will have an unusual effect on their enemies. Paul tells them that their actions will cause the enemy to realize that that they are the ones who are in the wrong. How would Paul have known this? Well, he knows based upon his own experience. Before his conversion, Paul actively persecuted Christians. He was able to draw on those memories. He was able to draw on those memories and remember how stubborn, how stubborn the the objects of his persecution were. 
And it wasn't until after his conversion that he came to a, a whole new realization. What he had regarded as simple stubbornness had actually been evidence. Evidence of the power of Christ enabling those people to remain steadfast. This realization was also evidence that despite any motives that he had at the time, Paul had been fighting a losing battle against God. Our Lord Jesus in Matthew 5 verse 10 had the following to say, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Just as surely as their persecutors would face God's judgment, the defenders of the gospel would be delivered and, and made victorious. And for that, they had reason to be grateful. But, as Paul will remind them, their gratitude should actually start even sooner than that. He tells them that they should be grateful for their suffering. But by using the phrase, granted to you, Paul is implying that suffering for Christ is a privilege. As we noted earlier, Paul was all too familiar with what suffering for Christ felt like. Paul regarded his own suffering as both a way to recognize and honor where Christ... Or Paul regarded his own suffering as both a way to recognize and honor what Christ had done for him, but it was also a way for him to lessen the, the punishment that his friends would have to endure. For Paul, the gift of salvation was inseparable from the cost. The gift of salvation was inseparable from the cost. And he implored his friends to, to understand and to live in that reality. In this way, uh, Paul is guiding them toward a point of acceptance, a point where they won't be surprised or disheartened by persecution, whether it be directed at them personally or at, at one of their brothers or sisters. The fact that he does not address any particulars makes it clear that, that Paul was more concerned about the spirit in which they dealt with suffering. He was more concerned about how they dealt with suffering than he was by the actual mechanics of the suffering. And because he, he cares for them so deeply, the apostle wants to give them a very precious gift, a gift that had proven invaluable in his own times of suffering. The, uh, the ability to turn suffering on its head and transform it into a good thing. The expectation of, of persecution combined with an attitude of gratitude, if you will, would give his friends the proper kingdom perspective on whatever trials they might be subjected to. Now, when I was preparing this message and reading and, and rereading the scriptures, I knew, I knew without any doubt that I would be spending a good amount of time exploring that very first sentence. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. I say this because as I read it, 
I could feel the holy magnifying glass focusing on me. Am I living as a citizen of heaven? Am I conducting myself in a manner that is worthy of the gospel? Not always. I am embarrassed to tell you that I don't always act as if I truly believe that God is watching me all of the time. I will try to mitigate and rationalize my actions by telling myself things like, well, at least I'm better than I used to be, and uh, you know it could be worse. And that, and that, is, that is just a cop-out. None of those excuses hold water. None of them hold water when I force myself to look at my behavior in a proper framework. As a follower of Jesus, I need to hold myself to a higher standard. As followers of Jesus, we all need to hold ourselves to a higher standard. See, I'm not, I'm not supposed to be content with merely being better than I used to be or not as bad as the guy down the street. Are you with me? Because if you're believing in Jesus, then he and he alone is the measuring rod for our lives. He is the only example against which we need to compare ourselves. Everything that we say and, and everything that we do should be passed through the Jesus filter. The, the Jesus filter is that extra step, that extra step that we take before we speak or act that, that verifies the worthiness of our actions. And I know that, that by now, most of you all know this in your head. And we, you, know, you, you probably all have a, a good working knowledge of the concept, but that isn't enough. It has to be woven into our hearts and into our spirits, or it, or it simply remains an intellectual curiosity that will uh, periodically surface and, and make you feel guilty about something you have said or something you've done or something you have posted online. Posted online. The contentious nature of this year's presidential election has proven to be a challenge for a lot of people. At least that's the impression that, that one would get uh, from reading the posts that appear on Facebook. It's obvious from the content and the tone that a lot of folks out there are not using their Jesus filters. And I suppose that that would be fine if all of these people were non-believers, but quite sadly, that is not the case. I am routinely, I mean, every day, appalled at the level of venom that is posted by people that, that I know for a fact claim to be a Christian. Really nasty things that, that don't serve the kingdom in the slightest. Uh, and on the contrary, it, it actually helps the enemy. And, and let, let me explain. We all, every one of us, we have our particular hot buttons. That, that, that one issue that will bring us from zero to full beast mode in a second. 
one of my hot buttons is, is when I'm reading a post and someone decides to lump all Christians together for the purpose of ridicule or scorn. You know, in, in spite of our best efforts as a society to avoid generalizations with with regard to race and gender and nationality, it's still acceptable to stereotype Christians, and not in a good way. There, There are a lot of people out there whose idea of what a Christian is has been cobbled together from negative sources, from reading uh, stories about high-profile leaders that that have fallen into sin, from reading stories about financial malfeasance by by churches. And and you get the idea. Whenever someone claiming to be a Christian posts something that they shouldn't or or responds in a conversation thread in a less than Christ-like manner, we all suffer. We all suffer. And our job, which is the advance of to the glory of God, our job gets made harder. Stereotypes are are reinforced and prejudice is validated when we allow ourselves to to behave in an unworthy manner on a public forum. It's okay to be angry, but in your anger, do not sin. Firing off an, an angry response It might be satisfying in in the moment, but the eternal cost is far too high. It's not worth putting a blemish on our faith just to get in the last word on some online argument. No one at any time or anywhere has had a life-changing epiphany as a result of losing an argument on Facebook. It just doesn't happen that way. Believe me. Okay, I I know all about getting fired up about stuff you read online. I also know that the smart thing to do would would just be to shut down the computer and and pray. You know, pray for the person that had offended me and pray for my own peace of mind. But, as you probably have guessed, I'm not always that smart and, and not always that eager to let go when I've been riled up or when I think that I'm right. To keep from making things worse, though, I have developed a a couple of strategies to to keep myself out of trouble. Sometimes I will actually type out a response, and and then I will put it through the following test. I will ask myself, is it kind, is it helpful, and is it necessary? Is it kind, is it helpful, is it necessary? Well, if it fails any one of of those criteria, I delete it. Occasionally, when I'm really fired up, I will write something out that I know will not pass the helpful, kind, and necessary test. I know it would not, it would fail on all three of those. But I type it out, and I read it, and I delete it. I delete it. And and it's become a, a habit of mine that that when I see anything from anybody on on Facebook that seems to have a a divisive agenda, I immediately go up to the upper right corner of that post and I hit the hide post button. I I don't even want to give it a chance to to get me fired up, to 
to make me angry. And oftentimes I do it because I just don't want to think about that person, that friend, that family member. I don't want to think of them as the kind of person that would post something like that. So I just delete it. I don't even give it a chance. So dealing, you know, dealing with the social media issues, it's a very small part, I know, of living worthy of the gospel. But it's, it is important. It is important. It, it was something that Paul had no idea about when he, when he wrote those words. It's something that is, that is new, and I just I really wanted to focus on it because for those of you who have been in church for a long time, you've heard countless stories on, on what living worthy of the gospel means. But this is a fairly recent development, and uh, I just wanted to, to address that. So everything that you've heard before about acting worthy of the gospel, that still applies. But I just wanted to, to add this little bit to it to make, to make it a more complete picture for you. See, I know of several instances where longtime friends and family members have completely stopped talking to one another over a silly argument that they got into on Facebook. It's just not it's just not worth it. If, if you read something and it fires you up so much and you absolutely have to say something, just post a cat video and get on with your day. The gospel that we preach is a gospel of love and grace, and it should be apparent to everyone, even those that you may not agree with, that we are that we are trying to live according to that belief. Everyone who, who calls themselves a Christian is subject to the same set of rules. And there, there are no exceptions, whether you became a Christian back before there was colored television, or if you've only been a Christian for an hour. We all play by the same rules. We are one body, we are united in one faith, and we have one purpose to preach Christ and Him crucified. The Lord's church is suffering right now. There's no question about it. Now, I hesitate to use the word persecution because I'm aware of situations around the world where Christians are actually putting their lives on the line and they're actually losing their lives in order to follow Jesus. But, but I have to call it something, so I, I will use the word persecution. But at the start of the lockdown, I was much more able to deal with this situation. There were still a lot of unknowns, and I was willing to be patient, you know, just like the rest of you. However, as time has gone on, and the inconsistent opinions of the of so-called experts kept piling up, my, my patience has begun to wear a little thin. Uh, why? <laughs> Just as an example, is it okay to fly on an airplane for three and a half hours, but we still are unable to meet indoors on Sunday for an hour? Just things like that. It, it, it honestly, it kind of makes me feel like we're being, sing, like we're being singled out. And that, uh, that kind of thinking is not always helpful. It takes a conscious effort 
to put things into the proper perspective and, and not allow ourselves to become frightened. I, I don't believe that the government is actively trying to hurt the church by limiting our gatherings. What I do believe, though, is that it, it, it's more a matter of what they consider to be valuable and essential. A, a, a friend of mine years ago gave me some advice, uh, and he told me one of the quickest ways to drive yourself nuts is to expect non-Christians to behave like Christians. See, that ex expectation is, is putting the cart before the horse. If a person, or in this case, persons, have not accepted the gospel of Jesus Christ, then it's absolute foolishness to expect that they will behave in a manner worthy of the gospel, right? If they're not Christian, how, how do they even know? For the most part, people who do not know Jesus will be incapable of understanding how important and what it means to be gathered in his name. It's not personal against us or against our faith. It's just ignorance. Now, truth be told, there are probably some God-hating heathens that are, are really getting a, a kick out of the restrictions because they're doing it out of spite. But, but I truly believe that those type are, are in the minority. So in the meantime, remain patient, uh, continue to be faithful to God, to his church, and to his people. The pain and the suffering that we all feel is for the sake of Jesus, and we have to find the joy in that. Continue to pray for an end to the restrictions. and Pray in practical ways. Uh, pray for a vaccine. Pray for a drop in, in positive test results. Pray against fear and pray for joy. In fact, why don't we pray right now? Good and gracious God, you are mighty and you are holy, and we are so blessed to call you Father. Help us, help us, Lord, to live lives that are worthy of the gospel. Protect our hearts from the fears and the distractions of the world and help us to find the joy, the joy that is beyond our understanding, the joy that comes from knowing that we are suffering for your sake. You gave it all and it is a privilege to be united with you in all of our struggles. We thank you for your faithfulness and provision. We love you, Lord. Amen. Well, as always, may the Lord continue to bless and to keep you. May he continue to be gracious unto you. May he turn his face, make it shine upon you, and grant you peace. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Uh, stay safe, stay healthy, and stay joyful. I love you all. Bye. After creation itself, God's greatest demonstration on how much he loves you is the willingness to send his own son, Jesus Christ, to die on our behalf at Calvary's cross. We want to take some time this morning and remember that sacrifice by sharing in some bread and some wine, in our case, juice, 
which represent the elements of his body and his shed blood. So before we take these elements, let's quiet our spirit and remember the cost of grace. The Lord Jesus, on the night that he was betrayed, took bread, gave thanks, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body. Do this in remembrance of me. Let's remember his body. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, this is the cup of the new covenant in my blood. Do this in remembrance of me whenever you drink it. Let's take the cup. Let's pray. Father, thank you that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Through his death, we now have life. And we thank you, Lord, that he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness. We give you praise. We give you thanks. Jesus' name, amen. As morning dawns and evening fades, you inspire songs of praise. Rise from earth to touch your heart and glorify your name. Your name is a strong and mighty tower. Your name is a shelter like no other. Your name, let the nations sing it louder cause nothing has the power to save but your